0: You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean-American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. 안녕하세요 여러분, bienvenidos al Chi Show. If you were not prepared for that amount of language coming at you, That's okay. Uh, This is a different special Janchi Show episode where I, KJ, uh, have the opportunity to be the guest of the show and our friend Eric Kemp uh, comes on and interviews me about the intersection of disability and adoption. Um, For our new listeners, we are currently on break uh, but Janchi means to feast in Korean and we believe that any proper feast uh, means party and so we're here to celebrate the intersectional identities that make us who we are. Uh, the show is typically hosted by myself, KJ, with Patrick and Nathan, two other Korean adoptees. Um, but as we are on break, uh, this is kind of a, a unique special time um, to, to do a bonus episode. So Eric approached me and was like, hey, uh, I went to a conference or a session at Khan, uh which is an adoptee network conference. And it was like, yeah, so it just got me thinking, made me curious about kind of the intersection of disability and special diseases and adoptees. Uh, And so he reached out and said, like, would you want to have a conversation about that? And I was like, of course. And then I said, would you like to record an episode with me about it? So this is something that I've been really passionate about um, and and wanted to talk about, but never really knew how to. That being said, uh, we probably get a lot of things wrong. We probably use language that maybe isn't. The best, uh, but honestly, it's more just an opportunity for us to explore um, and be curious and think about what it is to have this type of conversation. So i um, open to hearing feedback on the episode uh, where maybe our language could be more inclusive, uh, could be uh, safer or um, things that you found really interesting. We'd love to hear your feedback Um, so that is all for this intro and we're going to jump into the interview right now. This is something, um, that I have wanted to talk about and that's like an area that I don't have like the most experience or practice in talking mm-hmm. about so i thought that like having you if you've got questions and you've got thoughts and like that might actually be able to be a good way to enter into this conversation
1: absolutely um,
0: so i get to practice my language you're safe to ask anything you want because oh my goodness yeah i don't know i don't know what's <laughs> you know very I, I know little more than you do besides the fact that it's my life you know yeah um, but in terms of like good language and things i i don't know so
1: Um, well, a thank you for, I guess, just kind of the willingness to share your experiences and share your story. Cause, um, if I've learned anything is that we're at the intersection of so many different communities, so many different identities, um, that like to understand them fully, um, it's kind of an impossible task. And sometimes I think people think it's a fool's errand. And so they give up, um, on trying to understand that more than anything, I think because, of the adoptee lens and the adoptee perspective. It's so fascinating to hear like what intersection adoptee, like the adoptee narrative, um, like, I guess permeates to the disability or rare diseases, uh, communities. And and I also find it weird or maybe not weird. I, I don't want to say that word. It's more like, I find it interesting that those two spaces are grouped together. Um, What are your thoughts on, like, you know, on grouping or consolidating, uh, you know, people who have rare diseases with people who have disabilities?
0: Um, I mean, so strictly, strictly, I guess, for rare disease and disability, Mm -hmm. like... As I think about it, um, and this is, so my wife is the marketing manager for Make-A-Wish North Texas. So obviously oh, wow. like her okay. job deals with children with rare diseases or um, children with like critical illnesses and things sure. like that. And so I think like, as I think through um, my own experience and what I've seen and read from others in the disability space, as well as like just kind of hearsay through my wife's work and, and mm-hmm. thinking about and imagining like, what does life look like? I think it's more just like, It, I think there are probably similarities and um, significant differences, similarities in that, like from a parent's perspective and from a, like a secondary perspective, like if one has a disability or a rare disease that like, whether or not they were born with it or it's contracted later in life, whatever, like it could, like the way it affects one's life might be tangibly similar um however from the person with said disability or said rare disease like the mental space could be really different mm-hmm. um and i think that that's where like we talk about so often in the adoptee space how it's like uh typically the story of adoption is told from a parent's perspective and not yeah. from a, the adoptee's perspective yeah. and i think that like that grouping makes sense from a parent's perspective or from a guardian's perspective or from a friend's like outside perspective. Right. Uh But if we were to flip the narrative, I wonder um, if, if people with disabilities or with rare diseases would continue to choose to to group them together or if we would see the same type of aggregation issues that we see with like the term Asian American.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Cause I was, I was thinking that too, it's like, are we acting on a monolithic structure of once again, speaking on behalf of, because there's these, I don't want to say marginalized groups, but these, these groups very specific, um, unto their own that, even though there is some crossover, it's like is there enough crossover to validate and and quantify and, and qualify for a um, a a grouped space, a, a larger like you said aggregate uh, of that. So yeah, thank you for your thoughts on that. And I, I think it's much like the adoptee space where we're still trying to define what that may look like. Um, I think there's definitely basis and agency for having individual groups that are, or communities and, and, and events and what have you that are, uh, specifically tailored towards, um, you know, a certain, you know, disability or, or, or critical disease. Um, but yeah, being able to kind of, I guess, like investigate those in one space, in one event or, or a session or what have you, I think there's still, there's some merit in that, but I don't know. Um, mostly because it opened up my eyes. I think that's maybe I'm bearing the lead here is that, um, you know, going to con and, and, and seeing this event, um, that was, or a session that was specifically talking about rare diseases and, and, um, uh, disabilities opened my worldview and I want to know more. Um, some facts, they were, they were, They gave me um, or they gave us, um, those that attended, uh, the opportunity to look at their presentation again. And some facts and stats here, and Cage, I would love to hear kind of your reaction to these um, or if they're different from what you've seen, is internationally adopted children have disability rates similar to those adopted domestically, 11.7% versus 12.2% respectively. And more than twice the rate for all children in that age range, 5.8%. Um, as far as the adoptee lens goes, this kind of blew my mind too. 39% of adopted children have special health care needs and 26% have moderate to severe health difficulties as compared to 19% and 10% in the general population. Um, I guess kind of going back onto the the adoptee narrative, how do some of these stat, statistics um, – do they shock you or do they not shock you or are they the type of statistics that are reinforcing a particular narrative or, you know, once again, stats are <laughs> depending on, you know, how you use them can certainly reinforce certain things. So KJ, I guess, you know, some certain thoughts on, on those numbers that um, I just kind of read off.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like, so, my disability has always played a big part in my internal narrative of why I was adopted or mm-hmm. I guess specifically why I was given up for adoption um so when I I don't know if it was when I went back to Korea or if it was like in leading up to or following that trip but it was around that trip that I yeah. got to read my paperwork from the the US side of Holt International um, mm. and I don't know, I don't know if they're any different over in Korea necessarily, but guys, read those papers. And, um, it said that I had <laughs> yeah. a, a sibling and I was like, well, that like, I don't know. I don't know if there's like a large age difference, kind of like with Nathan, um, or if they're, you know, maybe sure. I have like a bunch of siblings, but to me, I always, I guess, had the sense that they probably just gave me up because I was born with, uh, a finger missing, um, and some further complications of my hand. Um, Mm -hmm. and so like maybe they just weren't in a place financially to deal with that. Uh, Um, granted that's, I mean, these are thoughts I've had since I was a kid, uh, with no understanding of any national healthcare system, let alone America's or Korea's (laughs) respectively. So I just figure, I don't know, like surgeries cost money and stuff. And so, um, that's probably why they gave me up because they couldn't afford to do that. so to me it makes sense just like drawing that out that uh a reason um for parents giving their children up for adoption broadly internationally is um you know the hope for a better life and uh to hopefully find some parent who can provide what they cannot um Mm -hmm. and i mean that's maybe like the most hopeful optimistic take there's also a take where it's just like well i don't want to deal with this kid and so you know give them up whatever um but either way i think that there is some some version of we hope that this is for a better life on the flip side um i think there's also um like not having gone through the adoption experience um as a adopter uh i don't know but I'm, i'm sure there's just like a an extra willingness for some parents to say like well i don't get a say in whether or not my kid is born with special needs or a rare disease yeah. or whatever. So I'll just go ahead and check these boxes. Um, or I, I mean, I do know some friends who have um, adopted domestically and it's like, yeah, it feels weird mm-hmm. to like say yes to this, but then no to this. Like I don't, you know, like so, but I think broadly it it, it does fit into my perception of hope for a better life on one hand, uh, probably some version of saviorism on the other. Yeah, um, And also I think the combination of those things is not, overall like a terrible thing like if you have a child who um has a disability or is born with a disease or anything like those kind of things Mm -hmm. and and the parents the family feels like they can't uh keeping them in the family would significantly detract from their life then um i mean who am i to say that as a parent like of course you just want to want the best for your kid and they decided that that was gonna be the best for their kid right um so i think that like Just, I don't know, statistically, but like in my mind, again, uh, it would make sense that that would be a common reason um, for adoptees to be given up uh, Mm -hmm. would be just because of that. Like we hope that they get a better life. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there's a lot of takes on like whether or not, like how we define a better life and and all those kinds of things. But I think purely from the parents' perspective in that instance, they're just like, I don't know, I hope for the best here uh, because I just don't feel equipped to to do that and realistically if they're in that headspace they probably don't also have access to the research or the knowledge or whatever of adoptees who are adults with disabilities or with uh rare diseases and things like being able to then speak out like well actually this is what turned out for me you know 30 years on here's Mm -hmm. some extra perspective to make this super difficult for you parent (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but yeah so it's just like it's, it's just one of those things but i think that that does at, at least in my internal narrative, that would explain that higher prevalence of special needs adoptees being out there in the world compared to the general populace. Mm,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and, and speaking on, on kind of your own experiences and and also giving grace, I think, to those of the adopters, um, which is, gosh, incredibly tough to do when with everything considered right um but yeah it's it's a matter of resources it's a matter of education it's a matter of 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 knowing what the i guess possibilities are and um you know when so much of it is either unwritten or not or hasn't been really taken into exploration within you know uh formal educated you know um informal education and and um Uh, public spaces it it can be very kind of once again a a something that's unknown and for me that's been that experience and so thank you again for kind of um, sharing on that and um, uh, one other thing from the presentation that they they mentioned was um, uh, and this kind of really hit me was the disability is one of the few marginalized groups anyone can be a part of at any time in their lives Um, and that was i don't know that was i i didn't quite i'm still kind of processing it honestly yeah um i've had friends reach out where they would let me know about you know whether it was a you know disability of theirs something that they've noticed behavior within themselves or with me um or what have you and they're saying like you know have you gotten diagnosed or have you explored that side of that behavior and find out motivations or what have you. Um, And then for others, it's like kind of a clear physical disability or rare disease that they've gotten diagnosed, they've gotten information. um, But, you know, depending on what it was, you know, what the disability or rare disease is um, they may have tons of information. They may have very limited ones. Um, And I think that once again, kind of through the adoptee lens, adds a another layer or at least a, a salient one to like, I know we don't like using this term, but a fog of like a, a an ambiguous um, realm in which we are, aren't able to dif- like define, like to further define our experiences. And I think with more language, with more research, with more education and more people just in our communities growing up and speaking out, um, we're able to further define these things. Um, Have you, um, I guess my next question would be like, have you explored, been able to explore those spaces, um, specifically within like adoptee communities and that intersection of, uh, disability and, and, um, uh, adoption?
0: You know, I've not, and I, I'm actually more surprised that, um, I'm more surprised that the disability doesn't come up more often on the show because, like those st- the stats that you provided, and just yeah. my own kind of sense of like, there got to be more of us, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, You know, like it's just like it's it's so so prevalent, and so I've explored like disability and adopt separately um so my surgeries were provided through a hospital here in dallas called scottish wright hospital and okay. uh they had uh lots of summer camps and things for all of their i mean probably all of their patients but like sure. um, the ones that i went to were specifically like hand uh camps <laughs> for all their hand patients okay um and so i got to go to none of those growing up and then um again as i just went to one as a as a teen um and so like it was interesting, like just being in that space, but it was all with like people with disabilities uh in their hands. Um mm. and so like finding like a really niche group among already like a small group. But no, I've not not explored the intersection of disability really with um any of my identities, which I think is um it's the one that I've felt most clearly for the longest, if that makes sense. Like because yeah. like, I was born this way. I'm just like I've always been uh in the disability space um but i i think my my parents in the same way that they raised me to be colorblind they also raised me to believe that i could do anything they just had to like i just had to be clever to figure out like if i want to play guitar like okay well Mm -hmm. like we'll we'll resource you to find a teacher that works with you or um just be clever about the way that you do it right Mm -hmm. and um so they were always um empowering and uplifting me Mm -hmm. to make make things happen for myself uh, which is i'm really grateful for but at the same time that i um had my like adoption apocalypse um and like was wrestling with the implications of that new revelation i started really considering myself as disabled and what that meant and um like moving through All of the things that like, again, for example, for guitar, like there are just techniques, sounds, playing styles, like whole songs that I will just never be able to play because my hand is the way it is. And I was just like moving through the sadness of that reality, not being angry necessarily, but just like in my own like level of like acceptance and grief and Mm -hmm. and that, you know, and then a little bit later, I found um, a couple of Instagram accounts and especially um, disability together on Instagram Okay. was one that really pushed me to think around like the intersection of for example um being like an environmentalist and being uh anti-ableist i guess yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know what i mean yeah. so like mm-hmm. but like thinking about disability and what and what the disabled community needs um like one one great example was like the disabled community really benefits from single use plastics. So even though like environmentalists are like, ah, single use plastics are really terrible. Mm -hmm. And you're like, can we figure out a solution that like saves the world and also continues to look after the the disabled community, you know? Um, And I was like, Oh man, yeah, that's, and I, that was like the first thing that really got my mind swirling on what other things are the general public being like, told thinking about like what are the other big activisms that may inadvertently be not thinking about the disabled community and other levels of intersectionality i think as we even as we talk about like what does adoptee activism look like what does asian american activism look like in in solidarity with other marginalized groups um i'm like still working out how to figure out how disability plays into the way that i talk about adoption the way that Mm -hmm. i talk about Asian Americanness, the way that I talk about social justice, all those kinds of things. Yeah. So, and that's why I, I wanted to do this show like this because I was like, I don't, I don't know what the entry point is, but this is a yeah. good starting point because you get to ask me all the questions and I get to try <laughs> putting my thoughts into cohesive statements <laughs> out yeah, loud.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's an exercise for both of us, and I'm glad that you kind of mentioned that kind of um, meta reasoning because um, you know, people, I, I think. And this is I I also think this is almost ableist thinking is that like I have so many questions, but I also don't want to offend or like trigger or, you know, be ableist. Right. I want to make sure that like as I ask questions, it's in a it's a very safe environment, a respectful one. Um, And, you know, if people don't want to share, that's fine. It's it's just more like I, I think I uh went to one session then all of a sudden my curiosity just became absolutely peaked because it's a, it's a worldview and an experience of an adoptee, but like with such a vastly different perspective that I'm completely intrigued by. Um, and not, it's not like as a, like, a it's like not a, a kink or a fetish. It's just more like, I need to know more about this cause I'm, um, it's just new territory. And, um, I think a lot of people that they, who don't have a rare disease or, or a disability, they feel like, um, where is that space to ask questions? So, I mean, same to you, it's like, it's wonderful to kind of speak with you in that regard and ask questions freely. Um, and yeah well let me just say
0: too like on the on the thing of asking questions because i found that i run into this a lot um especially in the interviews that we have on the show with people who um also have (laughs) live rent free (laughs) at the intersection of uh (laughs) of queer identity Mm -hmm. um in terms whether that's uh gender or sexuality or, or something else like i'm like can I ask questions about this? Should I ask questions about it? And for me, yeah. like the extra like hesitation is like, we're on a show about adoption. And so yeah. like, I kind of in the same way, I'm like, I, I had just like a long time ago needed to work through some of my own hangups around um, queer identity. And so mm-hmm. like, just Part of that for me was just becoming curious and I was like, I don't know if this show, because they came on to talk about adoption, is not necessarily the place to talk about the queerness, even though that is obviously an important intersection, right? Mm-hmm. But I think I think the thing with asking questions and not wanting to offend is like, A, you have to have uh, some relationship or B, mm-hmm. just always be willing to not get the answer that you want, uh, always be willing to give the person that you're asking the question like an out be like if you don't want to answer this right now totally yeah. get it you know whatever like just like to do like like we talk about um emotional burden and like the emotional like lifting of like lots of things from marginalized communities you know mm-hmm. and, like i don't want to like like some of the things that i see online is like there's a lot of people there are already resources out there for you to learn yeah, yeah. don't have don't give your friend emotional labor to, mm-hmm. to do all that you know so like Absolutely. if you can ask the question and also like do all the emotional labor of like giving them an easy out giving them Mm -hmm. like the space to just say like I don't want to talk about this giving them like whatever that is then I feel like you're already 80% of the way there in terms of creating a safe space to ask questions and then just be like you know any answer that you give is great Uh, Mm -hmm. even if it's just like no <laughs> yeah, like, it yeah, wasn't yeah. even a yes or no question um, um and you and, did that for me like you okay, you okay. said like yeah i went mm. to went to con uh would you be interested in talking about this and i was like mm. yeah let's do this as a podcast great, great so, yeah like i'm happy to talk about this offline but also i think that this is something that i, I do want to explore and i want to ex- explore out loud because mm-hmm. as you know the show is all about making safe spaces so yeah um so yeah
1: Oh, great. Well, yeah, KJ, I, um, once again, thank you for giving agency and, and uh, allowance there and, uh, understanding cause I think, yeah, there's too many times where, uh, and, and I'm glad that you actually brought up the career community too. Cause like, there's so many questions that once again, you don't want to give them the emotional burden. Right. Um, uh, but also too, it's like, how can I frame this correctly? Cause I feel very ignorant right now, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, I was even thinking about the term and kind of moving forward is that I was kind of even thinking the term of how I use uh, like that's lame to describe something. And then I learned that lame was also like a way of saying like, oh, that's a lame duck or like a, something that's disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was that's what it used to mean. And I get that like words can change and definitions can change with them. But it's also I didn't know if that is. Something triggering or there's language out there to say something else or like what like people thoughts are in especially in, you know, disabled communities like what are some of those words or like, what are some things that we are trying to advocate for um, in contemporary times. Um,
0: Yeah, I um, so. It's funny to bring up lame because I've literally never thought about that, even though like in my, uh, my early, early life Bible times, like it's so common that you hear like the lame will walk. Like that's just very yeah. common vernacular. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, Oh yeah. Like, but then I've never tied that to like something like, Oh, it's so lame. Just being like that. Those are connected. Like that their roots, um, come from the same place or especially a lame duck. So like personally, that's not triggering for me because yeah. like, I have always associated lame with the inability to walk um, or to quote, walk properly. Mm. Um, And so like lame duck, I was like, I guess flying is the main mode of transportation for a duck. So if it can't fly, then it could be a lame, you know, whatever. But like, because my motor functions, my like primary physical motor functions that enable me to travel Mm -hmm. aren't hindered by my disability. Then I've not ever personally had a problem with that. Um, I think there's a, I don't know. This is kind of a, a cop out answer, and I think there are so many people who who would get angry at me. But again, I'm I'm a newbie in this space as well. Sure. Like my hunch is that there is probably not a good way to say anything negative about anything without it being rooted in some type of. Uh, <laughs> bias or Prejudice. like racism yeah, yeah, yeah like any of those things you know what i mean mm-hmm. which begs the question like well how do you say that like something sucks and I'm like well, i mean i don't know like just just say that a thing sucks <laughs> I, I don't um, like this right now I don't yeah know. like, like yeah. you know but like also like i feel like uh especially in the case of like that's so lame mm-hmm. is like while you could say that about a situation or a circumstance um in my own experience i typically hear that about like literally a person's inability to do something like oh i can't go to the party friday night because i was grounded whatever yeah. you know when, like, oh that's so lame yeah. yeah yeah exactly you know what i mean where it's like it literally refers to a person's inability to do something there's probably other ways to say that but there's yeah. also just ways that you could like instead of like bemoaning your situation by casting like and this is really nitpicky but this yeah. is also the type of type of conversation and like the way that I think about the world. And so it's like, it's really nerdy for me uh, and fun for me, but like <laughs> instead of bemoaning the situation by placing blame on a person's inability to do something, yes. you could also express sympathy for their inability to do something and be like, and like in that way, like uplift the person. Yes. Like, Oh man, it sucks. Like we're going to miss you. Like that's a, that's a total bummer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and then you're like, you express the same kind of thing just in a way that doesn't punch down in a way that doesn't like imply some level of guilt or ableism Mm -hmm. or, you know, any of those kinds of things. Um, And I think like, that's a really, like in our recent show, we just talked about like the the power of switching between and switching from but to and language. Mm -hmm. So like uh, whatever that is, because of like the way that but negates the previous clause, like if you switch to and it actually adds to the previous clause. And Mm -hmm. so then we hold more space for, for gray areas right so this is in this situation saying that's so lame is like really hyper nitpicky and can be like a very simple way to like reframe the way that you think about a situation be like well how can i express sympathy for what's happening and like continue to build on a relationship that yeah. i have even though like some people would be like oh it's just like you know just just messing around with this person like whatever just giving him stick or whatever yeah and you're like yeah but even still you can do that and still like improve the relationship without having to punch down. Yeah. So um, all that being said, I'm not the person to talk to about like, dis like the group language mm-hmm. that might be hurtful or harmful because that's a, that's like a clear blind spot for me. Um, there's even debate, Um, and I don't, I have no idea what the, the general temperature of this is, but like do, do disabled people call themselves disabled? Do they call themselves people with disabilities? Like how, like, and that changes from, I think generally from person to person Uh about like how, whether they choose to identify as disabled or as a person with a disability or, you know, any of that type of stuff. So I think that language is really difficult, is always worth, um, considering and, and, and like complexifying, um, but for me, that's just a huge blind spot. Okay.
1: Yeah, because um, I think growing up and um, figuring out, like, is, do I call them handicapped or are they handicapable or are they abled <laughs> or, like, you know, wh- what is it? Like, I mean, can't we just go by each other's names? And that's kind of, like, the more cop-out, like, optimistic uh, of, like, we're all human beings kind of thing. Um, and in many spaces that can work. But in, I think it also kind of... Um, like I said, or like you said, it was the the but language versus the and language um, where it's like, um, yeah, we're all human, but there's this and, or no, we're all human. And there's these, you know, certain things that further define our experience of the human condition and of, uh, you know, human experiences. So um, I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And thank you for bringing up like kind of like the like, do we call like. I'm not in the space, so I won't use we language. But it's like, yeah, do disabled people call themselves disabled people? Is that how they want to be called? Um, and and that's where I think you mentioned the queer community, like where um, you know you are or or people taking agency over their pronouns. I think that's huge. Um, so so being able to kind of like signpost those type of things is massive, and and to show people that like I am an ally, but I'm also not like oh my goodness, like well-versed or educated in these spaces. And so, um, I think oftentimes we approach these things with trepidation and like timidness, (laughs) like, uh, I don't know what to do. So I think I'm just going to kind of avoid it my entire life. And with that, you're not really continuing conversation. You're just like kind of remaining in ignorance and hoping not to step on toes. And I don't think that's a great approach. Um, and that's an approach that I took for a long time. Um, uh, something i want to speak about was like my my niece she's um i'll say this i she's on the spectrum and um is i don't know if i don't know if a class has high functioning autism it's more like um she has certain uh triggers and she has certain behaviors that are you know um Once again, I want to speak on behalf of her, but um, yeah, it's I think autism, too, is just one of those ones where there's so many different forms and of it. It's like, how like do you feel comfortable like operating on the narrative of that or like uh, on the monolith of autism? Uh, But like you said, it's like or do you feel like you have language to say like, no, this is my hand or um uh or if it's only like I guess how would you describe your uh disability and like how would you identify yourself if you were trying trying to explain to somebody else um what happened?
0: yeah, so um or who you are i I typically <laughs> when I talk with my wife. Um, because she has like some of these same hangups and I, Mm -hmm. and I only say that not to say that I don't have the same hangups, but like she and I just like talk about these things. Um, I typically say like err on, if there's a politically correct term Mm -hmm. for a broad group of people, then use the politically correct term. But as soon as you can be more specific than that, be more specific than that. Like, like, it's not like I use queer because like for me in my mind, like queer encompasses gender. It encompasses, uh, sexuality. Mm -hmm. It encompasses like the freedom, uh, of questioning and the freedom of, uh, like figuring it out basically. Um, and if I know a man who is cisgendered and, homosexuals and i'll be like oh that's a gay man Mm -hmm. you know or if i know um a woman who is not cisgendered um and who is heterosexual then like i'll be like okay this is this how this person um chooses to define themselves like i'll be i'll continue to be more specific where i i can Mm be right um and so that's like broadly what i say um and so for me specifically i call myself disabled Mm and I guess I, I don't like, again, this is another blind spot. Cause I've just, it's not a space that I've been in for very long. Um, I don't know the classifications of disability beyond like, I have a physical disability in my right hand. Yeah. Um, like I'm missing a finger and I'm missing one of my forearm bones. Uh, and also my arm is just generally shorter than my left arm. Okay. So like, like that's the, that's like just physically what I have, Mm -hmm. uh, 10 year olds, eight, eight year olds might just be like, he got something wrong with his hand. (laughs) His hand looks, looks (laughs) different. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you nailed it. Like, that's exactly (laughs) what it is, you know? Uh Um, but like, yeah. So I'm just like, I don't know. Like I, I call myself disabled. I would say I have a physical disability. Mm -hmm. Um, and, like, things, like, especially, I think, the spectrum of, and this has really come out of my web development work, yeah. but the spectrum of, like, motor skills, the spectrum of, like, color visibility, um, what like what one is considered maybe, like, legally blind or legally deaf. Oh, yeah. Or mm-hmm. um, any of those types of things is really, like, interesting for me as a web developer because, like, I typically think, like, oh, well, I just can't do things completely, yeah. you know, even though it's like, well, you could just, like, you could still technically hear like low frequency vibrations, but like you're legally deaf or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So just like as a web developer, like I I prefer all of my tools to be accessible by default and will actively seek out those tools that are accessible by default. Love that, yeah. um, just because it's like, I mean, it's important to, to have that stuff in there, especially now that I work for a government and like that definitely has to be accessible by default because I have no idea what the, st- what the stats are for the Choctaw tribe in terms of like, the disability community within that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just want that to be, it's the internet, like it should be, it should be accessible by default. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but but I think the, the spectrum of that has really opened my eyes too, to be like, oh, actually I can be, even more gracious and I can do even more work to think about people who are, um, quote unquote, slightly disabled, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, those kinds of things. A classic example is being like somebody whose motor skills are affected and you can't see any physical manifestation of that. Um, like they don't have a walker, they're not in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. they don't have braces on their legs or they don't have like any, like, a they have a really good, uh, prosthetic on their hand or something like that, yeah. you know? Um, that like, actually, there's like levels of disability. Like, I consider myself to be like, quote, not that disabled. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, because like, generally, my hand doesn't affect things until you get to like, for lack of a better term, like a 12th grade level or like a college you know, like undergrad level um, because it's like I can do most things and not have to worry about mm-hmm. it, you know, um, like I can tie my shoes. I can generally get paper towel out of a paper towel dispenser at a bathroom. Yeah. I can open a bag of chips, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like that thinking about that, that range and that spectrum of ability. Um, yeah, that's like really been been interesting for me.
1: Absolutely. And you, you mentioned uh, web development and I've been thinking a lot about accessibility. Um, and how, um, especially being in, you know, uh, trying to get into film and television and entertainment where people are, are they still can't get over the subtitles of, um, you know, of films. And I'm just thinking like how much that actually helps um, mm-hmm. people to understand your stories. And yet you don't want those there <laughs> uh, or seem to have some hang up with like you know reading reading a film or having the subtitles there for people to because like i was thinking about like how with people going to the movie theaters i love going to the movie theaters i'm one of those that like yes i would i love the movie theater experience and then um or even a visiting a website it's like what are the accessibility like or, or what are things people are doing to make it more accessible for those that are that do have a disability either visual or otherwise or that is going to um not just enhance their experience like uh one of the few things i like to do is like putting on the closed captioning because it kind of gives me an insight as to how a film or television show was written because they'll describe Mm. the sounds they'll like talk about you know kind of the descriptions and and what's happening versus um the you know like being in public spaces where people are like why isn't just subtitles a default why aren't certain things just default there for people so um granted that's a lot of policy that's a lot of you know uh, government sanctions i'm sure that's a lot of you know um industry standards but i didn't know if you would be able to talk more about how um as a web developer when thinking about what kind of accessibility and what kind of, um, things you do for a website or what have you, or a software program to, um, make sure that people can access the info just like anybody else, um, and what efforts are being made.
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm not going to, like, talk to a ton about, like, the web development just because, like, it's sure, going to get okay. real, real nitty-gritty real, really quickly. <laughs> real but, like, okay. I think that, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think that they're, like, one of the the easiest things to consider, um, for example, like, and you talk about, like, the spectrum of ability, mm-hmm. specifically for vision, is... Um, like, are your colors, do, you, do your colors have enough contrast? And I think about this all the time. Like, people talk about um, alt text on Instagram. Um, yeah. And actually, one of my other favorite uh, disability advocates, um, her name is Kelsey Lindell, uh, Kelsey underscore Lindell on Instagram. So, her latest post is literally threads, right. accessibility, and, and disability inclusion, right? So, like, how uh, ways you can support disabled people on the app that's breaking the internet, um, like things like that. So, like, alt text, I think, is really important. Um, For people who like just don't have access to that Mm -hmm. at all, uh, like to to visually see the internet, especially on a platform like Instagram. But I also think what's interesting is like um, if people like as people move away from Instagram being purely photos and just like being like text on text or like image slides, whatever. um, Like, do your colors have enough contrast? Like, if 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 you have a user who has trouble differentiating uh specifically colors yeah. like blues and greens like kind of fade into the same area mm-hmm. or uh whatever like if your colors don't have enough contrast then like you've done all this work and creating this beautiful slide and like you know three percent of your audience can't read it yeah and like i mean i guess they could have alt text but again talk about like the like ability on a spectrum like they this pr- user may not have like a screen reader may not like know how to look for alt text mm-hmm. because like they typically don't need to go that far in their day-to-day life but they can't read your slides because there's not enough contrast in your images so they're like i guess i'll just like pay attention to you know whatever but like if your feed is mostly slides then like then that's really important too you know so i think they like color and contrast are one of those things that are like so so important uh, specifically on the internet and I also wonder too, um, like when you were talking about movies, I'm like, oh yeah, subtitles would be great. I have grown up with subtitles because I'm half deaf. I guess that's a, technically another, like, again, a level of ability that mm-hmm. I don't consider myself disabled by. Like I'm a professional audio engineer hilariously, but like <laughs> I am like half deaf. So like I can like mostly hear or I can hear enough out of my right ear, but it's not like full... Full throttle, right? Uh, So, like, if people... If somebody yelled at me across the street, I'm like, I have no idea where to look because, like, I don't have that sense of space. Um, So, I've just always had subtitles on. So, they've never bothered me. And I wonder, what would our movie theaters look like if they, like, came ready-made with captions? Like, think about, like, the magic of... Back when we used to have actual midnight premieres Mm -hmm. before they started being, like, the the day before, (laughs) like, (laughs) 2 p.m., Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Um, Like like just capturing like the energy and the excitement of a crowd at a movie premiere like that's locked off to a whole community of people because like they can't go and see captions and there's so much more to movie experience than just its sound there's so much more to like specifically going to the movies you know like there's the whole social component there's just like just like the whole experience right and so like because of one thing we've essentially trained a group of people to potentially just ignore the theaters because they can't access the main bit but they also don't get then the extra 20% that makes going to a movie special you know and if if like whether that's like we recompose the screens to have subtitles ready to go on the bottom Mm -hmm. or like do um dps and directors like can they compose their images and their shots like thinking about this is going to get subtitles Mm -hmm. how can i compose this in a way that like i can still have a beautiful shot and it's not going to get in the way of Subtitles being overlaid on top of that. Absolutely. You know, like, or is there like a clever way that we can do that? And th- finally, my my last consideration with subtitles is we just watched um Trevor Noah's latest stand-up on uh Netflix. And I was like, the subtitles are good and I appreciate them, but also I wish that like the people doing the subtitles timed it up so that like the jokes <laughs> and the timing, like all of that still <laughs> yeah. landed. Because like half the time Sarah will laugh at a joke because like she's already read the punchline. But <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but like but the delivery and the, the all, you know, like <laughs> uh-huh. all of that. And maybe that's like, you know, maybe cause like you want to like read all the information and then watch the delivery separately. That isn't exactly like, that's not a one for one translation, mm-hmm. but I'm like, isn't there a way that like we can make subtitles better? Like I know that people are freaking out about like the stranger things subtitles because like they were so descriptive in yeah. this. Like, again, if you have some hearing, but you like don't have full hearing, mm-hmm. then like that type of description is really wonderful. And I think is really engaging in the, uh, <laughs> the lack of like the hearing impaired space sure at the same time like firefly lane like a regular subtitle is just sucks teeth <laughs> like, they, like if i don't know what that sound is they suck their teeth a lot like what even is that you know yeah, it's just like yeah. all sorts of things so i think that there's there's still so much room to go in terms of that um but it just makes me like there's so much extra room for like for me i see the gap as just like so much space for creativity and fun and playfulness um and it just like improves the experience for everyone mm-hmm. you know um you bring up a
1: great point about like how directors or filmmakers right in general it's like how can we um you know if we know that it's going to get the subtitle treatment or if you know like even in just different languages like um you know where where that's going to be i always thought too it'd be super helpful to have subtitles and you see a little bit of this in different shows where they'll put the subtitles right underneath the character speaking because there's times where i'm like they have somebody off camera speaking and i'm like well who? who off camera there's like five people in this room who off camera is speaking. Um, and so even just putting like a name and a colon there would be super helpful to do certain things like that. Um, aesthetically is a lot more pleasing to look like, look and read at a back and forth exchange. Um, I'm not quite sure if I would consider myself disabled in the sense that I perforated both eardrums, um, or had perforations. So, I have some loss of hearing. I was like, how did you self perforate your eardrums? Playing rugby. Playing rugby. They're ready to tear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just kind of, you know, pull them out, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But no, uh, playing rugby, I got, I tackled somebody and then a rush of air pushed into my left ear and I felt I, I could hear the ocean for, oh gosh, like three days. It didn't clear up for that long. Um, and then the other one, I, uh, uh, jackknife into a pool off a off of a diving board and <laughs> clapped my ear right up against the water like an idiot. Oh yeah, and then so I thought it was like I thought it was just full of water, and it's like no, Eric, that's not full of water. You you punctured a hole in your eardrum, you idiot.
0: You done damage. Yeah,
1: yeah. So there's certain things. Yeah, I mean, I still suffer from tinnitus and certain other things. But to your point, like you know, from the listening community and like even as a writer myself, I'm trying to think about like okay, so how are they writing this out? And so the closed captioning or even the the, the the screen readers, the description, those things are actually super helpful because then I get to learn like, okay, so they're trying to elicit motion with like what you're saying, like the teeth chattering in the background. It's like, you know, like, uh, and for those that can't hear at all, like that's, those are very important cues and very important motifs to the story um, and being able to have those uh, uh, sonic cues um, to um, experience that story even more so. And so like just kind of reeling back into the kind of the adoptee community, it's like being able to understand those kind of nuances and, and accessibility. It's like, what can the adoptee community have these spaces be more accessible for those that are um, disabled or, or um, uh, experiencing a rare disease?
0: I mean, I don't know that there's anything more specific that the adoptee community can do in terms of making things accessible Mm -hmm. um, beyond, like, what every community needs to do. Yeah, ADA stuff. Um, Yeah, yeah, but I I also wonder, like, what the conversation looks like for – I think, again, like, going back to – to early days, uh, early days, our conversation is not that long, but (laughs) to the top of our conversation, uh, of, you know, what does it look like to center the adoptee perspective Mm -hmm. when you talk about, so this is something that I wrestle with a lot, um, and why I really struggle with, uh, people who come out strongly against international adoption, Mm -hmm. um, or adoption in general, is uh and i'm not saying that they're wrong or invalid or any of those things mm-hmm. just one of my own personal hangups is like i uh oh like one of my good friends he's gay uh so if he wants kids like yeah. adoption w- would be a viable route for him yeah so it's like i understand like adoption reform feels nearly impossible i understand uh that there are lots of issues with the way adoption happens currently mm-hmm. broadly internationally domestically etc and how can i like push for change and also not rob of a loved one of his ability to have a child and and to have a family. Right. And so I I think it's like the same kind of thing is like, what does, what is a disabled adoptee discussion that's led by disabled adoptees look like in terms of broadly how we think about, um, adoption reform, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: how we think about, um, like the parents who give up their kids for adoption, the parents who are receiving disabled uh, or um, kids with rare diseases. I don't know. Do we still say special needs? I don't know. Uh, Essentially special needs adoptees. Hmm. Probably not, but that's what I grew up with. Um, So for the purpose of shorthanding it uh, within this discussion only. Uh. um, Yeah. So it's just like, but how do we have like those adoptees be the ones to lead other types of you know what i mean mm-hmm. because i think that's it's so easy to fall into the trap of like this is my experience it's been uh validated revalidated spoken to amen mm-hmm. whatever um, by others in my community and uh i am a healthy able-bodied adoptee yeah. so what does it look like then for a disabled adoptee to be like well actually like this is my situation mm-hmm. and you know like hearing it Uh, played out against like all three parties of the adoption triangle um what does that look like and and how do we continue to push for better better reform better adoption basically um if not um adoption abolition while also Mm -hmm. not leaving out this section of adoptees
1: absolutely um you bring up great points that i i myself and and a strange advocate for um Less intercountry adoption, um, less transracial adoption, because it just—I know from personal experiences—and then you know, just talking with others within the community, like it just creates a bevy of trauma of 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 uh, yeah, and maybe it's also due to the times that we're given it, but like I mean, that's completely outside of anybody's control, but um, like. I say this with a lot of adoptees with a lot of adoptees. it's, It's a strange notion to be in a community where we don't want to see future generations of it. And like, to your point is that, you know, it's not like a manifestation of, of wanting a child. It's like, you know, providing a home and a family. And it's not so much saviorism. It's more like, you know, because of, who i am as a person right i am unable to have a child um and for a lot of people it it was like that and that's those were the kind of the circumstances and motivators of um many parents i think out there and so what you mentioned the adoptive triangle it's like yeah that one of those parties right that's that was their motivation they weren't equipped or they were unaware of so many resources and I try to give them grace, but then, you know, now it's like, well, how can we start taking the charge and the lead and where does it all go from here? And I think that's where the direction, sometimes I feel like we're screaming into a void or we're screaming back at the, the we're, we're, we're preaching to the choir, but we have no direction as to where this is going. Um, And that's why I, I've kind of been trying to, have others speak up and and know what and be a little just more feel. And once again, it's a kind of a selfish thing. I want to feel more educated. I want to know more. And, um, you know, it, it would be great to not speak on others behalf, but just be more knowledgeable about, hey, when you say like, like I've, I've met many adoptees where they're just like down with the system, no more adoption, none of that. And to your point, it's like, that's, I not taking away from that. You've clearly had some life experiences where, um, it would be in full support of that. Seriously, be full in support of that. And, um, and it goes back to the but language and the and language. It's like, and there are other adoptees, right. That have experienced certain other things with their adoption where, um, like, would they, would they feel the same way? And so it's like, yeah, we share that part of our identity with each other, but, what are other circumstances and other factors and how are they playing into all of this? And I think that's where the diaspora of adoptees in general, whether it's transracial intercountry, country, domestic foster care, late discovery, like it keeps, it keeps going. It just keeps going. Yeah. And um, I think because I'm so interested in the adoption side of all of it is that because adoption kind of permeates and, and, uh is a part of every single one of those that it's like okay well what is that kind of and maybe we'll never find it but what is kind of that shared commonality uh that adoption maybe more than the others um you know why does that permeate more than some of the other parts of our identity um I don't know I, I still don't know and uh I, I love exploring those types of spaces with so um, I, yeah, I don't know if you have approaches to kind of like figure out like or step into other communities and other kind of, I guess, I things that are strongly tied to your identity or and like how to, I guess, navigate the intersections of all of those things um, and maybe what are your personal thoughts on how adoption might be. The binding factor amongst all these communities
0: i think it's interesting um (laughs) it's i mean it's hard to to talk about like our identity is one of the things that i i realized about myself Mm -hmm. uh early on in starting the show was i was experiencing my like or the i guess the, the best way to say this is the aftermath of my um adoption apocalypse Mm -hmm. like this revelation of like oh shit i'm adopted like i'm asian like whatever Mm -hmm. like the aftermath of that took me on a certain trajectory where i really needed i felt like i needed to lean into my asian americanness uh and i needed to lean into my like social justice-ness my anti-racism Well, I needed to get to level one in terms of (laughs) anti-racism in my own skill set, you know, before I could progress to what I felt like needed to be like level 100, you know, given the time that that happened. Um, That wasn't true for Patrick and that wasn't true for Nathan. They each had their own, like, I know Patrick leaned hard and continues to lead hard into his adoption identity and then maybe – secondarily although at this point they're probably pretty break even uh his like asian americanness and and for nathan that was that was different uh different balance of those things too right and uh i think as i said at the top of the show like disability didn't come into that equation until much later uh much later being like probably eight months (laughs) i don't (laughs) know um through through a friend of mine i think who who reposted uh something from disability together and i was like Oh, yeah, I should think about that, you know, mm-hmm. um, even though prior to my adoption apocalypse, the disability community was the one that I felt most closely associated with, uh, probably second only to Asianness. ness yeah. you know, in terms of like intrinsic uh, physical identities that we hold about ourselves. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to ask someone how they think about themselves in terms of like those distinct identities mm-hmm. because i i typically my experience has been that people don't aren't able to break themselves down into component pieces yeah. i quite like yeah. that for example the other night sarah and i were having dessert and she said what type of bowl do you want your dessert in it was like a cobbler and i was like i don't know just like this kind of like larger like half plate half bowl situation <laughs> That's true. and she was like oh well i'm gonna get this small little like rice bowl because i like it i was like oh why do you like that more than the bowl that I chose. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I don't know, I just like it. I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, but like, what, what about it makes you happy? And she's like, well, it's it's cute. And it it had like a design painted on it and it's small. And I feel like I get more of it because even though we had the same portions by weight, Mm -hmm. it was presented in a smaller package. So it felt like a whole bowl as opposed to mine being more spread out, whatever. And so like, I was able to find out why she thought her bowl and her choice was better than mine, but like, it took me four questions to get there, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And so I was like, people don't typically think about themselves aren't, whether because they're not given the space or they don't have someone about ideas, you know, for a multitude of reasons, they don't think about themselves like that necessarily. And I've got a whole podcast where I get to explore um, those identities that way. So I think it is just like, yeah, I mean, it's tough to be able to think about those, those intersections. And I think too, it's it's down to person to person. Um, like there are a lot of adoptees for whom adoption is not a big part of their, uh, their journey. Um, whether that's because like they had their apocalypse moment and it wasn't that big a deal or, um, it's just not like their pre apocalypse moment. Um, but you know, it's just not one of those things. And so I think it's a matter of, uh, finding like, what is the, the core identity of, of who you are mm-hmm. and then letting that be the thing that, that binds you together yeah the driving you know? force like to me yeah like i almost feel more sometimes i feel more asian than adopted and other times i feel more adopted than asian yeah, in terms of like identities you know 100%. but that's really really fluid yeah um it's like disability part of the reason i don't talk about it that much is like i don't feel it that much mm. in terms of my own uh able-bodied privilege like i'm pretty able-bodied so i don't have to wrestle with these things they're yeah. not like at the forefront of my mind sure in the same way that it would be for other people.
1: Sure. So absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Cause I think there's a lot of times where we try to compartmentalize and people, I'm actually sometimes jealous of the people that can like, <laughs> like really make these clear distinct lines with their, their identity and, and all the intersections and, 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 uh, cross community, um, relationships because, Uh, sometimes, like you said, like I do feel a lot more Asian American at this point in time or um, I feel no more. My adoptee kind of narrative and and, um, identity is definitely showing through now. Um, And sometimes it's like it's a culmination of all of it. You know, it's just um, I just think because like. And you, you mentioned how you know people—that's just naturally not what they do. They they like what they like, or they they have certain preferences. But being able to kind of start breaking those down and figuring out what are those motivating factors, I think, um, is kind of why the Jonchi show is is incredible in that regard. And spaces just like the Jonchi show where you get to explore these different intersections and identities, um, but also too like like what are the questions to ask not to get too like meta with it. Right. But it's like, what are these questions that we're supposed to be asking about ourselves? And if we're unwilling or unable to kind of express, like express and compartmentalize to others, like here's what this identity has shown me and what I've learned from it and how I, you know, engage with it. And this is what I do versus, um, you know, you know, just having it be a giant unknown. (laughs) Um, So I guess, uh, you know, with myself, like, you know, especially living in Koreatown, there's times where I'm like, oh yeah, very Korean right now, feeling, you know, feeling (laughs) very Asian American right now. Um, And then all it takes sometimes is only like one interaction where they think I can speak Korean. I'm like, oh, and there's the adoptee side kind of punching through. And I just think about, all the little ways, and maybe this is just me feeling self-conscious all the little ways of people um, like maybe not considering like a person's identity or a person's disability or a person's you know multifaceted humanness uh, of all of it and and thinking about how like we will say like this is lame or we will say silly stupid stuff that may you know, trigger or may, you know, upset others or may show that you're not as in tune or not as, uh, you know, as well versus a person that you think you are. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for kind of exploring that with me in, in that regard. Cause, um, yeah, there's people out there. Um, I met some of the presenters of the, the disability at, at con, um, Uh, the disability panel at con, I got to, I had the privilege of getting to meet with a couple of them. Um, we weren't able to discuss much, but it was so wonderful seeing, uh, them being able to speak on their own behalf, um, in their own way. And I, and, uh, not only that we had, um, those that, uh, we had ASL interpreters, um, everywhere. And that was so refreshing, um, in many instances, uh, I was actually looking at the interpreter while I was you know just listening. I had the privilege of listening and being able to also, um, you know watch the interpreter and uh, I think just those little tiny bits of privilege and or just kind of, once again, I, I think I don't want to be celebrating ableism, but like it's like one of those things where being exposed to it more, has only gained I've only gained more appreciation for it. And some people are like, well, duh, you idiot. But like then there's times I think where people are happy living in their ignorance, living in their bliss um of not having to wrangle or wrestle or even just be simply exposed to any of these things. Um, whether it's the disabled community or not, right? Maybe it's something else. But um yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on like just Maybe the overexposure, or the maybe not overexposure, the the exposure of of marginalized communities or communities in general um, to mass public, uh, especially maybe even from an ability like a, a physical ability kind of lens. Like, if it's not necessary, like I can I can watch a TV show no problem. But I prefer having the subtitles on and stuff like that. Like, what's the what would be the benefit, I guess, to having full accessibility and all the tools be presented just up front for everybody. Or is that too big of a question? I guess.
0: No, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, I mean, it is a big question, but I don't think it's like too big of a question, but I, I think it's just the idea of representation. Representation yeah. matters. <laughs> and like representation in a, in a way that doesn't other, Yeah. you know what I mean? Um, like it's one thing to go to a place and see an ASL interpreter and, and I'm not I'm not saying this about you, but just be, yeah. just be like be like, oh man, that's so cool. There's an ASL interpreter. Yeah. And that's like that sticks out in your brain because you don't see it all oh, regularly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It sticks out in your brain because you're like, oh man, yeah. Seeing that that interpreter, maybe there is someone who needs that because they can't hear what's going on. It's a live event and we don't have <laughs> don't, not, our AI generated subtitles aren't good enough, <laughs> or we don't have a platform where we can project those out there so we have an asl interpreter uh which side note that's a weird thing that i've never thought about but maybe that's a maybe there maybe ai is coming for an asl interpreter's jobs i don't know <laughs> oh um, no anyways um but like when i talk about like the internet being accessible by default mm-hmm. right like i get annoyed when certain things like when i have to do it on my own like a because i'm like man some, somebody's already built all this and I have to like go and redo it and whatever just to make it accessible <laughs> yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And like, it like, you know, like selfishly, I'm like, Oh man, I designed this thing. Uh, and I checked my colors and there's not enough contrast. and I have to go back and redesign it. So whatever, like I have to, I complain about my own privilege, right? Yeah. Like the labor that I have to do to make it accessible. And yet if things are accessible by default, then it's like, we don't stop. Like it's not a, it, it doesn't feel weird to see something like an ASL interpreter mm-hmm. out in the wild. It doesn't like I remember being shamed by my friends for like watching things with subtitles on. Yeah. You know, and be like, "What what you watch things with subtitles on?" I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. Like I just I like it. It helps yeah. me blah blah." blah. And they're like, "Oh, it's so weird, you know, whatever." And I'm like, "It just makes it a safer space for people who do that for that not to be like it's just easier for them to be themselves, mm-hmm. you know." Um like I remember I don't remember if I've talked about this on the show. Uh, When I worked at the church, um, a good friend of mine who was hired to be um, the facilities person was so excited about like being able to uh, install paper towel dispensers that were manual instead of like the ones where you wave your hand in front of them. He was like, oh, yeah, it's like saves us so much money, blah, 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 whatever. And I was like, it really bothered me at the time. Because we had worked together, we had been friends, whatever. And I was just like, do you not see that you work with a disabled person on staff? Like, are you so blind to this reality of my life that like, you literally go to, this is obviously a minuscule example, but you go to greater lengths to, to make my life harder, you know, Mm -hmm. essentially those kinds of things. And like, but if things are accessible by default, like if homes have wider hallways so that they're easier to navigate with wheelchairs, like all those kinds of things. And like, again, it just continues to take away the emotional labor of those marginalized communities. And you're like, no, it's this is the way it is. And we actually care about those things. And then what, what I think we notice, uh, and this is true of, um, what, what I've seen in like the target and the Starbucks and mm-hmm. all that stuff with all of like them, like putting out like bright stuff and then it being like retracted yeah, or being vandalized yeah. or, or whatever. Mm-hmm you see that, but it's like, it's the absence of those things that hurts those marginalized communities. Once they're out there and then you take them away, then it's like, that's even worse. Like, because it like, it invalidates on a level that like, like you already had to struggle to like live Mm -hmm. basically. But once you're seen and then like, they decide, you know what, this is, this is too much or too hard or whatever. Then it's like, you just get slapped in the face and you're like, why, why are you going to do that? You know? Um, but I think it's, I think it's a good thing overall to sit in discomfort um Eric, i've heard you say a number of times you're like i'm not sure i don't know i'm still kind of learning you know whatever um and i think that like like an example for me is i sat in my own discomfort it my brain moved ahead of the other part of my brain the deeper part of my brain i guess um it used to make me so uncomfortable to see two men kissing on screen I've been like totally okay with gay people in my life and whatever, just like the queer community, like for a while. Mm-hmm. And it would like still like, like the, the point at which it was uncomfortable for me to watch two men kiss on screen yeah. while I was also like mentally like advocating for like queer rights and you know, like all yeah. that stuff it was like, it was so weird to me. I couldn't understand that discomfort, but it was like, deep i was like do i just hate myself do i hate my manhood and, and like gender expression is generally something that i'm currently wrestling with in terms of like my own identity sure. like i don't think it's that so, so it's like but i think those moments of discomfort when you see marginalized communities living their life mm-hmm. just being themselves <laughs> <sides, laughs> sure, yeah. are opportunities for us then to question like why am i feeling like that like if there is something that like makes me be like that gives me pause or whatever Mm -hmm. like that discomfort a i think it's good to sit in because it makes you a more complex human but b that's a an area where you're like do i need to update my language do i need to like think about this differently do i need to just expose myself to those kinds of things you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and yeah, so I think that those I think that those are good spaces to be in, and, and overall, um, help you as a as an ally, as an advocate, as a person who's just trying to be better, mm-hmm. a little bit better each day. Like sitting in that discomfort is really helpful for cluing you into where's that next one percent better going to come from. Yeah, and
1: I, I'm not quite sure if it's going to be like a a statistical or or, or quantifiable measurement of like how i'm getting better or how i'm trying to advance language but to your point like um it was i too kind of suffered from that like ew why are they de- you know like why am i getting such a revolting feeling seeing like seeing two men's kiss on screen like why what like let's break this down you know and for some they're just like why well, i don't like it. and then they write it off and they're doing their own thing whereas like i guess yeah for me and for the people that i want to keep close to me it's just like okay Let's, let's just break this down a little bit. And and I think that's a personal journey for many. It's like trying to figure these things out. Whereas like, you know, I felt like if we had, and I, and I think too, I think and feel that if we had more exposure to these types of things, right. And it's more like readily available to the public, then we wouldn't like, we wouldn't be in situations uh, of I don't know, like, uh, we wouldn't, maybe that's too idealistic. I'm thinking like, oh, well, if we just had more exposure, like it would solve all our problems, but it, it doesn't, it's like people still have to put in that work. And, um, it's just like, how can we, cause not everybody has friends like you, KJ. Not everybody has friends like, you know, in, in queer spaces or adopted spacers or, you know, in marginalized communities. how can we reach them? And, um, that's been something that I've been wrestling around a lot with too. Cause like, I think, um, you know, part of the adoptee conference, there was a white domestic adoptee and this conference is typically for Korean adoptees and Asian adoptees um, or historically has been, but you know, I just got to thinking like, I get that, you know, just the exposure of it. It's like, Oh yeah, you got to remember like the adoptee experience is not just transracial in their country. It's, also domestic you know it's also mm-hmm. late discovery it's all these different things and so um kind of being exposed to that is one thing but being able to do the work right and investigate it and have you know people to talk to and and safe spaces and accordance with that it's like where do we start because oftentimes it just feels like i've been exposed to it now what <laughs> like what's the direction now where do i go um and uh i think it's one thing to be and I also think it's one thing to be an ally, like, like you were saying, like, I believe, like, in supporting my, uh, my queer community and my brothers and sisters or or however you identify, you know, see that I'm still working on that kind of language, right? How how do I support them? And then, but also, like, how, why am I still feeling this way, like, as, as just like a jerk, like a knee jerk reaction? And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think we can wrap up here. Sure. But I think like the discomfort is good because it clues you in on where you can do the work, Absolutely. right? So then you go and you do the work and like mentally you're there and your gut is still not there. Mm-hmm. I think there's two, two things to remember um, for me because <laughs> I just lost one of them. But uh, <laughs> two things to remember. One of them is comfort takes time. And so like it is the regular exposure to that thing. It's the regular willingness to do the work and it just takes time. But I think like in the case of, for me watching two men kiss and this doesn't happen, like no other part of the queer community, like have, I had such a visceral like gut reaction to Mm -hmm. it's literally just two male presenting bodies kissing that like really bothered me. And I, I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. Um, but I think ultimately what changed was I was like, these are two people just wanting to live their life, two fictional people yeah. on a TV show. <laughs> yeah, true
1: that too. <laughs> wanting
0: to live their life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I just had to like be okay with that. Yeah, I had to figure like if I love love mm-hmm. uh, and just like want love to be the thing. Yeah, well, I'm like I just gotta. Make that okay. And then I think when I, like after I had done all this work around these like parts of identity that make up the human person.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think in, in spaces like the show uh, or at a conference, like you went to, it can be really easy to be like, Ooh, identity, you know, whatever. But I was actually after I'd done all of this identity work and I came back to seeing couples male presenting couples on TV Mm -hmm. as human beings, characters in a story, but human beings as people again. Mm -hmm. Then I was like, Oh, of course I can celebrate this because these are two people who have found love. These are two people who are, are celebrating that. And I don't want to get in the way of any of Mm -hmm. that, you know? And I think that like, that's, um, that's, that's such a, like a, almost, it feels like something somebody on the right would say, right? It feels like an all (laughs) lives matter or it feels like I don't see race. Right. But actually it's like, it is the the necessary full circle-ness of it where you go and you do all this work to see race, to see gender, to see sexuality, Mm -hmm. to see ability, to see like all of these things. And then through that, see the fullness of the human being and root for the humans and be like, I just want you to be so happy and so full of joy and whatever, you know? And I like, I I remember too, like um, at one of the, 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 like the event for my wife's work, Mm -hmm. the event, like the gala, um, there was a a wish kid who was dancing. She was doing the cha-cha slide. She had this killer dress on and she was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I was like, she's going so hard she's doing <laughs> the most work on this dance floor I love it. like just like just i mean it was like it was so it was pure joy watching her dance right mm-hmm. and i was like i like i see her in her wheelchair and like can register that that's like extra difficult for her mm-hmm. but actually at the end of the day like i just saw her as a teenager having fun with other teenagers like with an affinity group but i was like man this is just like that's the joy that i think is is so important um absolutely yeah i think just remembering that that comfort takes time Mm -hmm. is really important um and i don't remember what the second thing is that's okay i think just uh but yeah just like just doing the work but then you know and i think that there's always like if you're still uncomfortable then there's still more work to be done yeah and it might not be in the place that you expect right yeah. but i think like sometimes you just have to give yourself time but i think what i found was ultimately i just had to come back to like after i had done all of this identity work in myself and use those skills to give to that benefit to others like try to like do the emotional labor whatever as so i was like i have to all of this means nothing if i don't come back to seeing people as people yep you know all of this means nothing if i'm not able to move through that not just like ignore it but yeah. move through it to get back to the humanity of people yeah um, and then I can really really celebrate and really advocate for that I
1: think that's that's such a great bow tie on all of it, is that the, it's the humanity of it right is that um uh, where I kind of start to feel comfortable right in in seeing those spaces I I had a roommate who's gay in Utah of all places and um, I remember seeing him just break down after uh, a breakup, right? Um, it was a bad breakup. And I was like, oh, he reacted just like I did. And it was just kind of like, it was one of those things where it's like, whether he re- reacted in the same way I have in the past about a breakup, it doesn't matter. It's like, once again, just feeling the emotion and, and sent and, and seeing that was just like, yeah, it, we're all human. He, th- he just broke up with somebody that was very close to them. And, and it's like, being able to share those experiences, those emotions, like, yeah, it's a crappy emotion to have, but at the same time, it's like being, knowing that you have that shared reaction, it's like, doesn't that bring us together as people? And whether that person was another man or another, you know, or, or whoever, right? It didn't matter. Um, it, it, what mattered was like, you know, we we have those shared experiences and and we can't forget the humanity of it. So, um yeah, I got some tools and I got some direction. Um, and, uh, hopefully this was also something that you, you found cathartic or, or something that was constructive. Um, because I know for myself, I, I've been able to kind of sit in my discomfort a little bit more. Um, (laughs) and, uh, also, yeah, remember, remind myself that also remind myself and give myself grace of like, dude, you're a You'll have mistakes, you'll have mistakes along the way, but so long as I think you're putting forth a positive effort, and, and it, because I think there's a lot of people out there like myself where it's like, I have all these questions, but don't know where to start. And I think, uh, you know, having that comfortability, like you said, takes time, um, it takes work. Um, and then hopefully you come full circle with it and, and remind yourself of the humanity that is also there at the end of the day um, that we do have shared experiences, that we do have. Um, these things that are innately human you know humanness I don't know <laughs> like you like innately human um, that we all um that we all share um, regardless of any kind of other circumstance or identity
0: yeah, yeah. well yeah thanks for for reaching out and zero uh, privilege to talk to you about this because it revealed I mean reveals some of my own blind spots some other point ways to give myself grace Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think that's important and it just also reminded me like um part of being comfortable i guess my my like other piece of advice is like just be comfortable with being wrong and be comfortable with like backing down (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. like i feel like especially like the newer comedies that i see um have like this white woman who tries to do her like new diversity training gets it wrong and it just doesn't back down yeah and like doesn't say like i'm sorry you know whatever but like it's uncomfortable to sit in like oh i have just said something that maybe was not as inclusive as i wanted it to be or i expressed something that like whatever you Whoops. know i got it wrong nope. yeah and be like i'm so sorry and then just like immediately have to back down from that and just mm-hmm. sit in that own discomfort but not let that detract you um but yeah and i think that it was just there's been a really fun conversation um, and I hope that it's a, a safe space for a lot of people to enter into. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we got things wrong in the midst of, <laughs> <laughs> in the midst of talking um, and I'm, I'm happy to hear about it. And I, and I hope that people um, practice sitting in, in discomfort yeah. and uh, and that this becomes uh, the beginning of a way to be like, Oh yeah, maybe I feel ready to tackle this point of intersectionality of what it means to be human and what it means to, to give grace to other humans Mm -hmm. and, and those kinds of things. So, so yeah, thanks man. Yeah. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Eric Kemp. Uh, thank you, Eric, for hosting and for being willing to, to provide a platform and, and be vulnerable uh, as we explore some new areas and try out some new language and ultimately just get curious and try to be better humans. If you want to uh, reach out to me or to the show, uh, you can find us at John C. Show on all of our social media platforms. Uh, you can send us an email to show at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail if you have a follow-up question or anything like that uh, to 972-677-8867. Um, I'm at KJ Relke, wherever I want to be found on the internet. Uh, Patrick is at Patrick in the World. Nathan is at Nnowak. Um, you can also find Nathan on Facebook. Uh, if you want to support the show, please leave a rating, review, tell your friends, spread the news uh, that there's a good new podcast um, that you've enjoyed listening to. Um, I think that is it. Um, let's see. Oh, other accounts, Disability Together and Kelsey Lindell are both linked in the show notes. You can find Eric Kemp at KempBop on Instagram. And, yeah, I think that's it. So until next time, Chi Heyo! <laughs>